Hi there, I'm Brendan Byrne, and I've got a really special episode for you. Today marks the three-year birthday of this podcast, so I thought I'd invite some of the Are We There Yet frequent flyers back on the show to talk about our efforts to put humans on Mars. WKMG's Emily Speck and University of Central Florida's Dr. Phil Metzger stopped by my studio today to talk about lunar beer, Martian launch pads, and the future of human exploration in deep space. You can also watch this taping on our YouTube channel. We streamed it live earlier. I'll drop the link in the show notes. Anyways, hope you enjoy. Today marks three years since we've launched this podcast. We're clocking in at well over a million downloads of nearly 100 episodes. We've had conversations with scientists, engineers, journalists, thinkers, and artists, and we couldn't have done it without the support from our listeners. So I want to say a big thank you to everyone who subscribes and listens to this show. Uh, To celebrate this milestone, I'm joined by veteran Are We There Yet guests, Emily Speck. She's a digital journalist at WKMG here in Orlando and reports on space for the CBS affiliate. Emily, thanks for coming back. Thank you for having me. And Dr. Phil Metzger. He is a planetary scientist at the University of Central Florida. Phil, thanks for coming back. Hey, glad to be here. So for the past three years, we've been asking the question, when it comes to Mars, when, when it comes to putting humans on Mars, are we there yet? So, Phil, I'm going to start with that very simple question. Are we there yet? <laughs> well, we're not there yet, but I'm really optimistic we're going to have people on Mars in the late 2020s or the early 2030s. That sounds pretty optimistic, but I know the folks over at SpaceX are working really hard at it. And they've got smart people who know the challenges, they know the economic issues, and they're working to solve them. So... Um, I think it's going to happen. There's definitely the motivation to go to Mars, but what are some of the challenges and roadblocks that both these uh, public agencies like NASA and private companies like SpaceX are facing? Yeah, so um, it's a, a big economic problem, first of all. It takes a lot of infrastructure to get to Mars. You have to have launch vehicles. You have to have trans, um, transport to go from Earth to Mars, which is a long journey. You've got to have landers. You have to have outposts on the surface to protect the people from radiation. So there's a lot of hardware you have to develop, and you have to build it, launch it, operate it, and so that comes to money. Yeah, so, okay, so money is one of the bigger roadblocks there, right? Seems to be a problem with with a lot of these projects, right? Yeah, um, so for NASA, uh, the plan right now was the late 2030s or 2040s, last I heard, and again, it comes down to money. It's having enough budget to build all of the hardware. Mm-hmm. Well, we're chatting with uh, Dr. Phil Metzger from UCF. We also have Emily Speck here, a space journalist at WKMG. Uh, we're also joined by you here on the live stream. Um, so if you're watching the live broadcast of this conversation, I invite you to ask questions as well. Uh, you can send us a tweet. We're at A-W-T-Y Mars. Are we there yet, Mars? Get it? Um, you can also use the hashtag Hashtag ask A-W-T-Y. We're already starting to get some tweets in here. I see Michael McConville has joined us. He is also a veteran um, veteran guest on the show. So, Mike, glad to have you here on the live stream. Um, Emily, I'm going to ask you the same question. When it comes to putting humans on Mars, uh, are we there yet? Nope, not quite. Uh, <laughs> not, not even close. But um, uh, we've had a few roadblocks, or I would say a few added steps along, along the journey. You know, we've really seen a redirect from Mars 
mm-hmm. to the moon, which is it's a good it's a good stepping stone. So no, we are we are not there yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when we first talked on the show, we had you back in in 2016 on one of the first episodes. Mm-hmm. The plan was for for NASA and and the agency uh, to to head to Mars. I, there was right. you, you couldn't escape it. It was journey to Mars. That's mm-hmm. where we were going. Uh, but now that there's a, a, a new president and a new uh, NASA administration administrator, those right. um, goals have changed, right? We're, we're looking at returning humans to the moon first. Kind of mm-hmm. walk us through through that. Right. So under President Trump, things did shift. He wants he wants us to go back to the moon. That's under his space policy directive one, which the uh, NASA administrator has made great strides towards. Um, they've come up with, you know, the commercial lunar program, uh, which will hopefully get us there through commercial companies. Um, so that's been a big shift, you know, instead of saying, you know, Mars is the end goal. Now we're saying the moon and then Mars. Mm-hmm. We need to get to the moon first. We need a permanent sustainable base there. We need to find resources there in order to get to Mars. So it's, I wouldn't say it's taking a step back. I think it's just, it's, it's another step, mm-hmm. like a, a stepping stone. So mm-hmm. Emily says it's another step. Uh, Dr. Phil Metzger, do you think it's the right step? I do, yeah. Um, I am pro-moon first because if we utilize the resources of the moon, we can dramatically lower the cost of doing Mars missions. But that's going to require a sustained effort for some decades to build up the capabilities to extract resources from the moon, also from asteroids, either way works, and um, develop orbiting depots, the ability to refuel spacecraft in orbit, the ability to even create spacecraft in orbit. That's coming within a few decades. When we get that, when we have an economy in space, then there will be a lot of other players who have their own business cases, their own customers, and they will be able to take some of the burden off of NASA. So NASA doesn't have to carry the cost of designing and building up everything from scratch. And that will make it much more doable for the space agency. Mm-hmm. What about the Apollo effect? Um, we're coming up on 50 years since um, Apollo 11 and first humans stepped foot on the moon. And, and you know, there was this uh, kind of wave of inspiration in people joining engineering and science fields. Um, do you find that uh, or do you expect that the same thing to happen when we put humans back on the moon, you know, decades later? Well, I do, and I think it's actually going to start within a month because there's a lunar lander on the way. It was built by a small group of individuals in a nonprofit in Israel. It's the Bereshit lander, Mm -hmm. and it's going to land on the moon in April. And when people see that even a small, scrappy group of people can build a lunar mission, we're going to realize that the game has changed. Technology has advanced a lot since the Apollo days. And the things that are within our grasp are much greater than before. I think that's going to get people excited about Mars. Mm-hmm. The the mission that um, that Phil mentioned, Bereshit, that's mm-hmm. drumming up quite a bit of excitement on really, on Twitter. Right? Yeah, it really is. People are really excited about it. Um, you know, like like you said, it's the small, scrappy uh, Israeli nonprofit, um, and and they've said part of their mission is to inspire, you know, children and future generations of space explorers, and that's. That's been pretty, pretty cool to see that. I know it's working. I mean, they had, I think there's a children's book involved, and there's a whole other Mm -hmm. lot of um, resources going into driving kids towards STEM fields. And, yeah, that's been pretty exciting to see Mm -hmm. that happen for sure. There's this phenomenal photograph of of the 
spacecraft on its way to the moon, and you can see the Earth in the yes, background. Yes, in the it's background. Just, it's, it's mind-blowing yeah, to see that. That is really cool. Uh, so I'm going to take a question from Twitter here. Um, this is from uh, Matthew Petty, who some of you may know. He asked, what kind of beer will the first Martians brew? Um, I'm going to give that to the scientist. <laughs> Phil, what do you think? Okay, is it even well, possible? Yeah, of course it's possible. It's just chemical engineering. And um, Mars has a lot of water. We know that. We don't know much about growing crops on Mars, so if you want to grow the hops or the <laughs> the other ingredients for beer in the Martian soil, we have a little bit of work to do. We have to make sure that the chemistry of the soil isn't going to be toxic. Probably is. <laughs> I wouldn't drink it until we do a little bit of cleanup on that water, but um, it's definitely possible. Um, there's already companies talking about making lunar beer because right. there's water on the moon, too. I wouldn't drink that either. We already know that has a lot of stuff, including mercury. But, oh um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's going to be one of the early products of civilization in space, just like it was one of the early products of civilization on the Earth. Mm-hmm. Emily, what are your thoughts? Would you drink a Martian beer or a lunar beer? Um, I'm going to take Phil's advice and not, not drink the water um, and, and hope that uh, we get some, some brewer scientists involved. I mean, it already kind of is a science. You know, mm. you're, you're kind of an amateur brewer in a way. You, you would know. Um, but, yeah, we'll see. We, we were talking a little bit earlier about the, you know, your comforts, like what would you would miss um, on Mars. So that would be kind of interesting to see that we're thinking about those things. Like there's so many things, so many steps that we need to get to before we can even say, I'm going to have a cold one on the Martian surface. Mm. <laughs> but it's it's still kind of fun to think about that, you know. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, I would be more than happy to be a, a taste tester mm-hmm, um, for mm-hmm. that one. So if anyone's out there looking to make lunar beer... You know where to find me. <laughs> um, Emily, since, since the start of the podcast, um, we've seen some really exciting development in human space flight, mm-hmm. um, specifically the work of private companies to launch humans to the International Space Station. Uh, walk us through some of the milestones that we've seen just this year right. um, and, and what's to come. Right. So, um, well, going back to last year, we learned who the first commercial crew astronauts will be to launch on either SpaceX Crew Dragon or the Boeing Starliner. Um, So that was very exciting, putting um, those faces with those spacecrafts and the spacesuits and and things like that. Um, And then, you know, just last... Not a few weeks ago, even, we just had uh, the, the first Crew Dragon uncrewed flight, and that was very exciting because that's one or two steps until we have a crewed flight from U.S. soil for the first time since 2011. So um, that was really exciting. I mean, the astronauts there, uh, Bob Benkin and Doug Hurley, they were there watching the launch along with Elon Musk, and they're going to be the first astronauts to go on Crew Dragon when it does launch. Mm -hmm. So um, that's pretty exciting. Uh, Boeing still has their uncrewed flight of Starliner coming up. Um, That's It was slated for April, but we're now hearing that there are even more delays with that, but we'll see. Um, <clears throat> they're facing some other challenges right now. So it still looks like by the end of this year, we could have crude flights from mm-hmm. U.S. soil again on American-built rockets and spacecrafts, mm-hmm. which is very exciting. What's the importance of this? Like, How does this fit into the, the larger architecture of deep space human exploration? Why spend so much time and money on, on getting astronauts to low right. Earth orbit? Well, we needed to do this anyways. We've been paying Russia um, since, ooh, sorry. 
live radio or live, live radio, TV. That, yeah. is, that is a 12-15 meeting that I should be in right now. <laughs> well, thanks for skipping it. So, um, I'm going to turn that off. Um, sorry about that. Um, no, the bigger picture is, so we've been paying Russia uh, since 2011 to launch our astronauts um, to the space station. And it's very important to get astronauts to the space station where we have hundreds of experiments going on um, in low Earth orbit and to maintain um, all the things that we're learning from that and learning how humans can live for long periods of time in space. Um, and, and they have for a very long time now. There's, I, I believe, high, high school juniors who have never lived a day without an astronaut above them. That's mm -hmm. pretty exciting. So that that's bigger picture, um, for sure. Getting off relying Russia and having our own resources getting us to space again. Mm -hmm. I remember that first <laughs> exploration missions that shows how old I am now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Phil, you've been thinking a lot about how to use material on other worlds like the moon or Mars um, to, to kind of, you know, to support this human space flight and, and human missions and also colonize um, these worlds. Can, can you kind of tell us a bit about that idea? How, how do you use the stuff that's there to make things? Yeah, so that's uh, an area of a lot of activity right now. In fact, when I was in your parking lot before walking in the building, I was on the phone with a space architect who is designing habitats for Mars. That's incredible that we have that job, right? <laughs> I space know, architect. isn't that amazing? <laughs> isn't that cool? He's a Martian architect <laughs> building the homes that you are going to live in one day. And um, he is working with simulated Martian soil and inventing methods to turn it into a building material. They already have some, some processes that they have innovated. They have robots that are 3D printing structures already, and they're working out how do you do architecture differently because the economies of Mars are different than on Earth. There's a, um, they want to protect against radiation, and they want to maximize the volume for the amount of building material that they use because the time your robots spend building is precious. It's priceless on another planet. So the economic questions are different, and therefore the architecture has to be different. But it's exciting because this work is already happening. There are people doing it. And um, so th one idea is you scoop up the soil and you mix it with a polymer. You can make these polymers from the Martian atmosphere using the carbon dioxide and using the water that's in the ground to make hydrocarbons. And then those can be a binder to simply glue the dirt together. And the, the hydrocarbons are also good radiation shielding. So um, that's already in work. You can bring the hydrocarbons from Earth because that's easier than making them on Mars. But that's a lot of mass to bring all of that from Earth. So it's a trade-off between complexity of your robots versus the amount of transport cost. Mm -hmm. And these are the things we're working on, um, trying to find the best solutions using the materials that are available. So you can actually you have all of the materials there. I didn't realize that you can make those those polymers or those the glue from what's on well Mars. in principle in principle you can we haven't actually prototyped the processes to make the plastics on mars or on the moon mm -hmm. the lunar ice also contains everything you need for a full supply chain on the moon hmm. um, so these can be done in principle so far we have prototyped some of the 3d printing with the regolith we've um, we've used sintering processes as well as hydrocarbon based polymers that you bring from the earth 
Uh, we've also worked on concrete type materials where you have to bring things from Earth. We've used sulfur, which you can get on the moon in various locations. So there are a lot of different ways. We have literally have explored 50 different ways to build. Um, 50 was the actual number of different methods to 3D print structures on the moon or on Mars. That's fascinating. Wow. And you're also, if, if you're planning on colonizing the moon or Mars, you're going to need to have a place for these spaceships to land. And you've been thinking about building launch pads, right? Or landing pads. How that's you, right. What, what, what's the challenge in that? Yeah, so that's one of the first things you have to do because uh, I spent about 15 years researching how does rocket exhaust blow soil when you land on the moon or Mars. So this is like as the spacecraft is coming down, it, it's going to kick up dust yeah. and dirt and all that right. stuff. Right, so uh, the, all of the research tells us that for a large lander, a human class or a cargo class lander on Mars is going to dig a really, really deep hole. And it's going to blow rocks back up at the vehicle from underneath. And the eject is going to go out about one kilometer in distance. Now, a kilometer is not so bad. You can drive a kilometer so you can land away from your outpost. But the problem, the biggest problem, in my opinion, is the size of the hole it's going to make. And when your rocket engine shuts off, all that dirt is falling into the hole and it's sapping the soil out front of the landing pads of the huh. rocket. And so it can tilt without adequate control. And so there's some stability issues with the landed vehicle that are a real concern. Mm -hmm. So we are looking at building landing pads. You would send a small lander first with a robot. The robot will turn the dirt into a concrete-like material, and then later the large vehicle could come and land on that landing pad. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. I'm going to take a, a question from um, a Twitter User uh, James McGarry asks, how could you go from a Mars research station, kind of like the ISS, to a functional colony? How many people would you need to have a functional colony on Mars? Have you given any thought, Phil? Um, well, that's a great question, and I'm not really an expert in that field. Uh, but I could say most people who are looking into Mars missions are looking at approximately 10 people in the first crew. And... Um, it depends on how they're going to live. Uh, the number of people that you need to eventually have in your outpost depends on whether you're simply going to be sending everything from Earth to support them, or are they going to be doing mining and manufacturing to support themselves? And how closed can you make that Martian economy? Um, as long as you've got benefactors on Earth sending stuff, then they can focus on doing science. But if they have to be making products to live on, you're going to have to have a certain size of that Martian economy. And so it may be 100 people, it might be 1,000 or even a million. It depends on how isolated they're going to be from the terrestrial economy. What's some of the work that you're doing down here on Earth to kind of um, prepare for, for those colonies? You, you talk about there's 50 different prototypes to 3D print these habitats. Where do you start? Like you're you're building the the regolith, the the synthetic regolith here, um, just down the street from here. Can you talk a little bit about the the testing and the prototyping of of these ideas and and the work that's happening here on Earth? Well, there's a lot of work to be done, and there are a lot of people all over the world working on it. Uh, so, some of the early things you have to do is figure out how to make landing pads, figure out how to dig the soil. And so just designing an excavator that can work in lower gravity is a concern. Uh, on the moon, it's a bigger concern than on Mars because the gravity is so low. And if you try to scoop the soil, you're just going to push yourselves backwards. 
because the penetration resistance on that shovel blade is more than your body weight. So how do you shove a soil uh, a shovel in the soil when you don't have enough weight to do it? Hmm. So we're working on methods like impacting uh, uh, percussive shovels that vibrate the soil it's as like they a hammer in. drill. Almost. Yeah, a really innovative method invented at the Kennedy Space Center Swamp Works is to dig in both directions at the same time with rotating buckets, so that all the digging forces cancel out, huh. and then you don't need any weight on wheels to be able to dig. And they've tested it with gravity offloaders, and it really works. You can dig in zero gravity with really tough regolith using this counter-rotating digging system. So those are some of the early things we have to work on. Um, We're developing the soil to test the digging with because we don't have easy access to the moon and Mars. How do you test a digging system when you don't have the right kind of dirt and the right environment? So just creating simulated lunar and Martian soil is a big area of work that Mm. we're doing right now. Cool. So lots of lots of work being done here on Earth to prep for that. But Emily Speck, there's there's also lots of work being done on Mars by our robotic mm-hmm. counterparts. Um, and and we had we had a loss recently of one of them. Can you can you bring us back to that story? Yeah, um, NASA finally declared, or not finally, but uh, NASA officially declared that Opportunity's uh, mission has ended. I don't want to say Opportunity is dead because you know that's. It's cruel. And un- it's cruel and unusual, <laughs> and 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 the the research from the mission really does live on, so it it doesn't really die. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that did happen um, earlier this year, and I know for me, I mean, the mission was originally it was supposed to last, I think, ninety days, mm-hmm. so it it well exceeded that, and and that is amazing. Um, but it was kind of I was a little nostalgic when when that official announcement came out, I was looking through all the photos Mm -hmm. of how far it's traveled and just the unique views on Mars that we've, we've learned. A lot of people were too. There were, there were, there were these obituaries to, (laughs) to this robot. It was, it was fascinating. Yeah, it is. It's fascinating. And, um, it's interesting to me because there are so many personal connections to these missions, these robotic missions. A lot of people maybe maybe don't understand that, but when you think about the life of a spacecraft or the life of a lander or a, a rover, there are people who've spent decades and, and, and Phil can attest to yeah, Phil can attest to this, who've spent, you know, decades of their life and their work and and working to make these missions happen. And so so when a mission ends it's you know, it it is kind of like a loss of something, but um, the achievement was was mm-hmm. very amazing in the long run. So, and we have a lot to look forward to. There's uh, Mars Insight, which is just right. starting its science yeah. campaign, and also Mars 2020. Right? What what are you most excited about for the the robotic missions ahead? So, Insight's really exciting. Um, NASA again achieved landing a spacecraft on Mars, um, which is not easy. Which is which is not easy. But you know, this time around, I I don't know about you, but I felt. It was a little less stressful than, you know, we've referred to it as the the seven minutes of terror Mm -hmm. between the landing. But we learned a couple things this time with the landing. We had the the CubeSats that that followed along and helped with relay information, communication information. And I think that's something we'll see for future missions to Mars. Pretty cool. Um, But after landing, uh, InSight did all the things that it was supposed to do. Um, It did Recently, it's had a little hiccup. It started drilling, and it hit something. I think it only got... um, I don't want to get the number wrong, but I think it's like 20 centimeters or something deep. And it's supposed to keep digging um, because it's essentially a, a mole of Mars. It's going to tell us about the interior of the planet. It's going to um, tell us about Mars quakes, detect Mars quakes. Um, and so it's had a little bit of a hiccup there. Um, 
but as we know with other missions that have had issues the engineers troubleshoot them and they mm -hmm. work through them and they figure out next steps so and i'm sure there's a the exact same model here on earth and they're probably working with that right now and in fact I know they are, so that's pretty. It, it's pretty exciting. So there's lots of things to come from that. Cool, mm -hmm. uh, Phil Metzger. What are you most excited about for um, Martian exploration in the coming years? Oh my goodness, there's a lot happening. Um, I'm going to be excited. As, well, so I'm human focused. I'm working on human spaceflight. So I'm going to be excited as we start to do experiments with using the resources to support human exploration on Mars. The the uh, next NASA mission is con it contains an experiment to work with the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and it's called MOXIE. So it'll be interesting to see that experiment, uh, testing using space resources. Um, I'm going to be excited when we start to send larger, more ambitious missions, starting to build landing pads on Mars, um, and. It's not just NASA now doing this. Like I mentioned before, SpaceX is also working on getting to mm -hmm. Mars. And other so, countries as well, right? Yes, of course. And so we're going to start to see a variety of missions, including ones from SpaceX and other countries going and doing things on Mars. Mm -hmm. I know SpaceX is specifically working towards humans on Mars because Elon famously said he wants to die on Mars, preferably not on impact. <laughs> And um, so he's, he wants to see hundreds of people living on Mars within his lifetime. And that's a very compressed time scale to get 100 people or more living on Mars. So they're going to be sending missions with a, a lot of activity pretty soon. Mm -hmm. When do you think I'll stop asking the question, are we there yet? And I have to change the name of the podcast. Or is that anytime soon? I think, it'll, I think it'll be in the 2030s when humans finally walk on Mars. Okay. And Emily Speck? I would agree with that timeline. Um, I'm excited for the fact that probably one of the first humans um, on Mars might be a woman. The administrator recently said that, so that's really exciting. I think um, we've come a long way as far as space exploration with um, gender and uh, race, but we still have a long way to go. So I hope by that time that our astronauts and our space explorers um, maybe reflect more of that. So, mm -hmm. And first female, all-female spacewalk heck, later this month, right? Heck yeah. <laughs> it's still Women's History Month. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, We've been speaking with WKMG's Emily Speck. She covers space news from Central Florida. She's on Twitter. Follow her at EM Speck and also Central Florida or U University of Central Florida's Dr. Phil Metzger. He's also on Twitter, Twitter as well, Dr. Phil Till. Um, Emily, Phil, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. My pleasure. And thank you for three years of this podcast. I hope to bring you more insightful conversations about human exploration. Um, and I can only do that with your support. Um, so help us out by supporting this program with a donation. Uh, you can get a really sweet Are We There Yet podcast patch uh, by making a donation to WMFE. You can do that WMFE.org slash patch. Um, or for more donation options, visit WMFE.org slash support. Big shout-out to the behind-the-scenes folks that keep this podcast exploring. Our communications specialist, Jenny Babcock, who set up this live stream today. Thank you. And our engineer, Mac Dula. Uh, and special thanks to my news director and editor, Matthew Petty, uh, for insight and support as we uh, chart uh, human exploration together. So that's going to do it. Until next time, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>